There is a clear and present danger to the church, and we need to be very aware of that. If there is anyone on the face of this earth that Satan would like to destroy, it is true Christians through the church of God. He is known as the destroyer. It's one of his titles. I'll give a few examples in history. What did he do after God created man and woman? Some people think it was years before he attacked Adam and Eve. I really rather doubt that, knowing the kind of being he is and having seen some of the things that he has done. Mr. Armstrong felt that right after the Sabbath and God's instruction, it was probably Sunday morning when he showed up. And uh, he may very well be right. Uh, I don't know that we could prove that one way or another, but it seems to fit the way Satan would work. And certainly, after God kept him away on Sabbath, when would he show up? On the day that he has adopted as his holy day, Sunday. I, I think that that could be so. Now, it says, when he is cast down from heaven, the first thing he will do, first order of business, will be to come after the woman, the church, and try to destroy every last human being on a physical level to get rid of the church. Now, we're naive, I think, if we think Satan doesn't know what's going on. Think of Moses. He was born to a Hebrew family. Nobody had had a word about deliverance from slavery. Uh, it was just an average family, slaves in Egypt. And yet, when Moses was born... Satan obviously had a sense of the timing, knowing God's plan, and knowing that God would deliver Israel from Egypt. And at that time, somehow he was able to bring into Pharaoh's thinking that all Hebrew babies needed to die. Satan was able to plant those thoughts in people's minds. So he knew what was going on. So he found a way to communicate that to the people who could do something about it. So they tried killing all the Hebrew babies to be sure they got the one that God had designated to eventually lead those people out of slavery. How did he know? Had God whispered it in his ear? scriptural record is not clear, but he did it. When Christ was born, there was a certain expectancy in the area that someday there would be a Messiah, and the Jews expected the Messiah to be born. They didn't expect it, I guess, in quite the same way that it happened. They certainly didn't accept him. But how somehow, some way, Satan communicated to the leaders of the land in that day that there was someone born who would be very important and there would be a threat to his kingship. 
So he orchestrated things behind the scenes and used people. Those people did not know they were being used. To them, what information that was brought to them seemed logical. It seemed like, hey, this is something we need to act on. We want to be sure we preserve the kingdom, and so on and so forth. So it came in a very subtle fashion, somehow. And they tried to kill all the babies that had been born up to a certain age. Joseph and Mary were warned of an angel to flee to Egypt with Christ so that he would not be killed. So Satan, very cleverly and very subtly, somehow worked that out so that men's minds would work in a certain way and try to destroy the Christ child. Later on in his life, after 40 days of fasting, Satan appeared. And he quoted Scripture to Christ. He appeared to be, in that sense, righteous, quoting Scripture. And yet he put a little twist on the Scripture. He took it out of the correct context, and he used it to try to destroy Christ. He took him when he was very hungry and thirsty and offered the things that his body craved. He knows human nature very well. He knows human motives. He knows human tendencies. And he has the capacity to play on those tendencies, often unbeknownst to us. He doesn't have to possess us. He doesn't have to control us. He can very subtly use us as his tools, and we might never know it. Pharaoh didn't know it. Herod didn't know it. The Jews and the Roman soldiers at Christ's death didn't know it. But behind the scenes, Judas was being manipulated. The Romans were being manipulated. Pilate was manipulated by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were being manipulated by their father, the devil. Now, did the Pharisees think that their father was the devil? Not on your life. They felt they worshipped the true God of the Old Testament and that he was going to send a Messiah to them. They didn't think Christ was that Messiah. They misread it. They didn't know. They were deceived. They thought they were godly. They thought they were righteous. But somehow, some way, over a period of time, Satan had turned them into his tools. And somehow he had adopted them as his children and had become their father because Christ said, you are of your father, the devil. How could that happen? And yet they still thought they were worshiping the true God. How can we have 2.1 billion people on this earth today who think they are worshiping the true God and yet have no idea of what true Christianity is? Satan is a very powerful being. Now here at the end and throughout history, Sometimes he has done things in very dramatic fashion, hasn't he? At the Exodus, he was very dramatic in turning walking sticks into snakes. God did he one better. 
At the end time, it says Satan's ministers, his tools, who think they are godly and who think they are righteous, will call fire from heaven and deceive all mankind. If you don't think Satan is powerful, he's deceived the whole world. Revelation 12, 9. At the end of the millennium, and I recited this on the last great day, he'll be turned loose for a short season, and he is going to deceive millions and millions of peoples as the sand of the sea and bring them to fight God in the New Jerusalem. That is almost too much to grasp. That after God has ruled on the earth a thousand years and brought peace and safety and security and all the things that mankind could possibly want or need, Satan, just like that, will be able to push certain buttons on those people and cause them to turn from the everlasting God and follow him. Now, that's a very dramatic manifestation, just as the snakes were in Exodus. But that isn't usually the way he works. How did he approach Adam and Eve? He went to Eve and said, God said you couldn't eat of the fruit of the garden, didn't he? Boy, it's a beautiful garden. God must be something. Now, I'm kind of embellishing this story, but what approach must he have used? What a beautiful garden God has given you. But you can't eat the fruit? He got her saying yes. Oh, yeah! God said we can eat the fruit of the garden. You're wrong about that. We can eat the fruit of the garden. However, there is one tree in the middle of the garden he said we should stay away from. Oh, really? Just one tree? God has really been good to you, hasn't he, Eve? God has really been good to you. But you know, I don't think he told you everything. He told you almost everything, but he might have held something back. Oh, yeah? Curiosity. See, humans are curious. Now, curiosity is natural to human beings, isn't it? But he knew that. So he says, I'll get her. I'll use her curiosity against her. Did she realize she was being manipulated by Satan? Not in your life. Didn't have a clue until she'd been had. Don't you realize? Didn't he tell you that if you eat of that tree, you'll know the difference between good and evil, and you'll be just like God? Oh, yeah? Man, I wonder why he didn't tell us that. Let's go look at that tree. Or maybe he said, come on, let's go look at the tree. Maybe she had not even gone to look at it at this point. Because when he took her there, she said, Oh, that looks pleasant to eat. And he said, Here, have some. It'll make you feel better. You'll know more. This is an important tree. I wonder why he forgot to tell you this. 
have some. Think I will. Bed in the water. He is very, very subtle. He can use us before we even have a clue. And we don't know a lot of times that we're being used until it's too late. We must be very, very careful. Now, most of the time, I avoid discussion of Satan, discussions of demons and things demons do. Once in a while, we might touch on them. Because I would like to think he's not out there. I'll get on with my life, and I'll try to avoid him. And it does say in James, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. And I don't want to be, in that sense, curious about the things Satan can do, and yet we need to be realistic as well about what he can do, and be sure that we are, A, either not tools of Satan inadvertently, or B, that we are not deceived when someone is used as a tool of Satan, whether they know it or not. We must be aware. We must be vigilant because Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He would kill every last one of us if he could, and he's going to try. Now, since God has not turned him loose on us physically to destroy us yet, he won't until Revelation 12 when it's time to flee. But he's having a field day with the church today spiritually, destroying the church. We heard about that a bit in the sermonette. He is discouraging people. He's leading them into false doctrine. He's using every machination, every way he can think of to try to turn us from God, to get between us and God. And it's easy for him to do because we're human and because we have human emotions and we have human nature. And Satan can use our human nature against us so easily. What are the works of the flesh? Lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, adultery, murder, lying, stealing, gossiping. Those are the works of the flesh, as per Galatians 5, and there are others that aren't even listed there. We all have vanity, ego. We all have all the qualities of the flesh. And if Satan can, he will use us. How quickly can he turn us to idolatry? That's probably the most common sin there is, is idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, bottom line, it's putting anything ahead of God. And how easy is it for Satan to tempt us, to use our human nature against us, and cause us to put ourselves ahead of God? What does he play on? Selfishness, greed, vanity, envy, jealousy. Those are qualities, qualities, that's the wrong word, I suppose. Those are things that we have. And he can use those to cause us to put ourselves ahead of God just like that. And does. And we've committed idolatry. 
because we have put ourselves up as God. Anything that is ahead of God is an idol. And when I want to indulge my flesh, whether it be thought or action, it is so easy to put myself ahead of God and His Word. I doubt a day goes by that we do not in some form or another commit idolatry by putting ourselves first. It's that simple. Let's go to 2 Corinthians for a moment. 2 Corinthians uh, 2. Now, the background of this that I'm about to read is that there was a man who was committing a sexual sin in the Corinthian church. And Paul wrote them and said, put that man out. Don't allow that to be in the church. And they were sort of raising or not looking or sweeping it under the rug or whatever. So he said, put that man out. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh unless until he repents. They did that. But the man did repent. Now, that's unusual in itself, isn't it? Usually, when people get in an attitude where they're putting themselves that much ahead of God and have dipped into sin, tend to become bitter, resentful, uh, they fight authority or government or whatever, and it isn't fair. Satan uses, it just isn't fair on us so quickly. But this man did not allow that to get in his way. Maybe it did initially, I don't know. But if it did, he fought through it. He repented of the sin, he asked for forgiveness, and he turned to God. Now those people who had been kind of looking the other way while he sinned, and perhaps even laughing about it, because that was an area that was full of immorality of all kinds. So they had become accustomed to it, and it wasn't any big deal to them in that sense. They were new Christians, and they didn't really grasp and understand how much God wants us to remain pure and clean and not lust and covet and get involved in immoral things. So to them, it wasn't that big a deal. Their consciences had been seared by sin. So then when the man did repent, <laughs> they had another problem. They were unforgiving. Now, all this man had been through and marked publicly and turned over to Satan in the congregation in public so that all could hear and know that this would not be tolerated. The man, in spite of that, did what Paul intended, and that is, he repented. Let's pick it up in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 7. So that contra contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him instead of rejecting him, lest perhaps such a, a one should be swallowed up or swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Now he's been through sin, he's repented, and now you will not forgive him. And how must that have made the man feel? You know, I did what was asked of me. I quit sinning. I turned to God. It's not fair if you don't accept me. 
but he was not, they were not willing to. Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. Real, true, godly love, which included forgiveness. For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. Now he started out with a problem. He got over his, now you've got one. And are you going to be obedient? Are you going to forgive? Are you going to forget? Are you going to move on here and accept this man who has repented? To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. Now, doesn't that echo what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount that we've just recently been through? If you forgive others their trespasses, I will forgive you yours. But if you don't, I will not forgive you. He didn't mince words. He didn't stutter. He meant that. And Paul is echoing it here. For if I forgive anything to whom I forgive it for your sakes, forgave I it in the person of Christ. Now notice, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Satan has certain devices, certain ways that he goes about getting to us. And Paul said, I'm not ignorant of those. And I submit that you and I also should not be ignorant of Satan's devices and how he can use us as he did Eve before we even know it. And not even as it happens or maybe even afterward realize that he suckered us. Now I'm trying today to educate us so that we not, do not let that happen to us, that we don't let him do it, nor if he manages to use someone as a tool, we don't allow him to screw us up. Now, what devices did he use in Corinthians? First of all, he used natural tendencies of the man and perhaps long-time habits and ways of thinking that the man had to lead him into an incestuous relationship. And then he used these people's human nature. Once you put somebody down, don't ever let them up off the ground. As they say in the bar room, kick them while they're down. Put the boots to them. Don't let them up. So he used that natural instinct, I guess it is, of a human being. It's like chickens. If one's sick or is bleeding... Pack it to death. Don't let it survive. Don't let it heal. See how he used their human nature against them? He's very clever. He's very subtle. Jeremiah 18. God forbid that we should allow Satan in any way to use any of us Chapter 18, verse 12, And they said, There is no hope, but we will walk after our own devices, and we will everyone do the imagination of his evil heart. Now here is a human response. We'll work after our own devices. Paul said, Don't be ignorant of Satan's devices, because we can imagine, we can impute motive, we can determine 
what somebody is doing and what their attitude is and what they have done or whatever. If we can put down God, or if we can put down those whom God has sent, then we can walk in our own understanding. Israel walked every man to his own understanding. It was a very, very sad time in Israel's history. When each man leans to his own understanding, you have nothing but problems. Because Satan can pick people off one by one. He can use them and utilize them. Verse 13, Therefore, therefore thus says the Eternal, Ask you now among the heathen, Who has heard such things? The Virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. Will a man leave the snow of Lebanon, which comes from the rock of the field? Or shall the cold flowing waters that come from another place be forsaken? You know, if you have good, clean, cold water coming right out of the rock, would you leave that? 15. Because my people has forgotten me. They have burned incense to vanity. And they have caused them to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths to walk in a way not cast up or a road not built or a highway not paved. They've chosen a wrong path. And it's going to cause them all kinds of grief. Did they do it deliberately? No, they just kind of leaned to their own understanding and first thing you know, they were way out in left field and didn't even know it. That's how it happens. So easily. Isaiah 32. Satan is very, very clever. Isaiah 32, verse 6. The vile person, verse 5, shall be no more called liberal, nor the churl said to be bountiful. Vile person would be ungodly. For the ungodly person will speak ungodliness, and his heart will work iniquity to practice hypocrisy and to utter error against the eternal, to make empty the soul of the hungry, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. A lot of times people don't know or don't recognize or will not admit that the attitude they're in is a wrong or, in that sense, evil attitude. We can all get in evil attitudes, whether it's depression or discouragement or critical or whatever it might be. There are lots of negative attitudes we can get in, which work evil. And we can slip into them very quickly, can't we? Have you ever noticed how your attitude can change based on something you see, based on something someone says, based on something that happens? You can go from exuberance and happiness to discouragement, doubt, and fear very quickly. And you can go the other way pretty quickly, too. In other words, Satan uses emotion. Emotion is one of his greatest keys, one of his greatest tools. He has made a religion that 2.1 billion so-called Christians follow that is based on emotion. He has used a scripture saying the greatest thing is love. And indeed, that is correct. 1 Corinthians 13. The greatest thing is love. 
He's based an entire false religious system on that Scripture. It is based on human emotion. It is not based on godly love. Most in that Christian world believe the Ten Commandments are done away. They do not believe in the law of God. Now, this is not a new phenomenon. It had already happened in the first century A.D. John the Apostle was still alive. The false Christianity had already been established based on love. Now, Paul went through great pains to explain the love of God in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and in the Gospel of John. He understood that there is a false love that seems real, highly emotional, and yet it's not based on godliness. So he explained over and over in different ways, 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that you keep the commandments. He said it in several different ways. But if you're going to define God's love, it is through commandment keeping. So if anyone says the commandments are done away, and we don't have to do these physical things, they do not understand the love of God. They understand only human emotion. And human emotion can be very, very powerful, can it not? Yes, it can. We have to be very careful. Let's go to Proverbs 19. Proverbs 19. You know, you can often say of people when they're young, I've heard it said all my life by various people at various times, various parts of the country, well, they're too young to even know what love is. That's often true. And we can be older and still have human feeling and not understand what godly love is because we're defining it wrong. And we think our feelings must be love. Proverbs 19, verse 21. There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the eternal, that shall stand. We find many ways around things. We find many ways of getting our way or leaning to our own understanding. There are many devices in a human heart to justify attitudes, thoughts, feelings, positions, all kinds of reasonings. When it comes to finding justification for the way we think or the way we act, we are experts at finding justifications. We're good at it. But it doesn't matter. When it's all said and done, the counsel of God will stand. His word will stand no matter what. You might try to get around something. You might justify your thinking. But before it's all over, God's way will stand. 
only godly love will survive. Human emotion will go away. You know by the fruits whether it's godly love or human emotions. Proverbs 12, verse 2. A good man obtains favor of the eternal, but a man of wicked devices will he condemn. So if we give in to our human nature and we allow ourselves to be ruled by our feelings and our emotions rather than by God's Word, it'll all come out in the long run. You'll either find favor of God or not. That's the way it works. Psalm 37. Psalm 37. And here I want verse 7. Psalm 37, 7. Rest in the eternal and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. Don't worry about those who give in to their human nature, their human thinking, and bring their devices to pass. Wait patiently for God. He'll take care of things. If you do what's right, He will take care of things. God takes care of business. Psalm 10, verse 2. The wicked man in his pride does persecute the poor, the lowly. Pride is at the base of wickedness. There are many, many scriptures, and I don't have time to go through them all now. We've done it before, which show there is no room anywhere for pride of any kind. If we are proud, we are wrong. No kind of pride. The father did not even say, I'm proud of you, son. He said, I'm well pleased. He never took pride in anything. Never had a proud attitude. God isn't that way. Anytime we show any kind of pride, family, home, part of the country, part of the world, our country, Anything, we're wrong. God owns it all. God made it all. The silver and the gold is His. Everything on this earth is His, including you and me. So we have nothing to be proud of. But we're proud of our looks. We're proud of our smarts. We're proud of our car. We're proud of our home. We're proud of our wife or our husband. We're so easily proud of so many things. There's no room for that. Meekness and humility are something that God looks for. It says He resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So if you have any pride, you've got to repent. And pride is what leads us to conflict so often, is it not? You can't talk to me that way. You can't tell me what to do. I'm smart. I'm godly. Think about Miriam and Aaron. Oh, no, here that comes again. Think about how Satan used them. Now, Miriam and Aaron, close to Moses, family, and Satan didn't come up to them and tell them, you know that Moses is a real problem here in Israel. You ought to do something about it. Is that the way he approached them? I don't think so. He put thoughts 
impulses into their mind. Remember, he is the prince of the power of the air. He can broadcast thoughts. He can broadcast attitudes. He can put things in people's minds. And I'm sure it started out, well, can we say reasonably innocently? Perhaps. He just put the thought in your mind. You know, I don't like what Moses did there. That just didn't seem quite right. That that doesn't quite fit. Moses made a mistake. After all, he's my brother. I've known him since he was a little kid. He's made lots of mistakes, so I guess it's no big deal. He might have made one here. But who is he anyway? You see, there's a process taking place here. Well, that's right, he is my brother. My opinion is just as good as his. We grew up together. Who does he think he is, anyway? We're escalating here. See, it's really easy to forget that God called Moses and trained Moses for a job, and God put him in it. Moses still made mistakes. Moses wasn't perfect by any means. But we have to grasp that God put Moses there to do a job even though he was yet imperfect. God told Samuel, don't worry about it, Sammy baby. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They've always stoned the prophets. Any man I send, anything that I have ever done to try to get people to listen They'll put them down. They'll discredit them. They'll make take their credibility away. Ultimately, they stone them. Now, we don't pick up rocks today usually and stone them like they did with Stephen or like they did with Paul or like they did with the ancient prophets. We just stone them with words. Same attitude. So that's what Miriam and Aaron started to do. It became. It started relatively innocently, by Satan playing on their human nature and the ultimate human feeling that I'm as good as you are. Matter of fact, I think I'm better than you are. Now, it isn't always necessarily true. Was Moses better than them? No. He wasn't. He was still a human being who made mistakes. But God had called him to do a job. And Satan wanted to use them to destroy Moses' credibility. And God would not allow that to happen. And when you suddenly get leprosy, you think, ooh. can bring up Korah. I imagine Satan put thoughts in his mind. Immediately, if you start bringing these things up, somebody who's got an attitude will say, Oh, you think I'm Korah? That's the defense I've always heard over the decades. Anytime you bring that example up, Oh, you think I'm Korah? They get real nasty about it. It's always been. I can remember that for the last 50 years, people having that reaction. 
No, nobody's saying you're Korah. But Satan, very cleverly, with Miriam and Aaron and Eve and others, Herod, got people thinking a certain way, and it escalated and got worse and worse and worse until there was a confrontation. Inevitable. Now, God defended his people, and Korah and his family and everything he possessed went down in a hole in the ground, and it slammed shut. And he was probably thinking as it opened up and he started falling, this isn't fair. I'm just as good as you are. What's happening? He was used. I think Kor will come up in the second resurrection. Maybe the earth will open. And this time instead of falling in, he'll rise out of it. And the ground will close under him, and he'll be standing on firm ground. He's going to look around and say, where's Moses? <laughs> Moses will be standing there saying, hi, Korah. Learn anything down there? I believe I did, Moses. I'm ready to listen. I do believe now God was using you. I didn't believe it at that time. I thought that you had gone off the track and God was done with you, and that I had a better idea. But now I can see I was wrong. I think he'll be humbled. God's not done with Korah. He's not done with Miriam and Aaron. He's done with Satan, but he's not done with people. Judas is another good example. I think Judas will come up in the second resurrection. He never was converted. Even after Christ died and Christ came back, he said to Peter, when you are converted. So Peter had not been converted to that point. Neither had Judas, obviously. He had been utilized, manipulated by the clever and subtle devices of Satan to turn against the very Savior of the world. But that was fairly common, wasn't it? Isn't that what happened to the Pharisees who thought they were righteous, who thought they were doing God's service by killing Christ? They honestly thought they were doing right. Paul said he was the chiefest of sinners because he had killed Christians and persecuted them. Was Saul an evil man? No, I wouldn't think, even as he killed Christians, that he inside was evil. He looked upon Christians as evil. Satan had turned his mind, just like the Pharisees, to the point he thought those who were serving God were serving Satan, and that he was serving God, not Satan. Paul. God struck him down, said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Say, huh? But he couldn't see and as he staggered and groped, he began to think, oh, maybe I was used by Satan and I didn't even know it. Has that happened to any of us? I've been used of Satan many, many, many times. I don't think I've ever been possessed or totally controlled by him, but I've been used by him a lot of times, all my life, or all through my life. 
He could use my human nature to get me in wrong attitudes, critical attitudes, accusing attitudes. Who is the accuser of the brethren? It's one of Satan's titles, Revelation 12. He is the accuser of the brethren. So he is the master accuser. Now, when we get in critical attitudes about each other, about the ministry, about whoever it is, and we start accusing, we have become a tool of the master accuser. Because he who accuses is of his father, the devil. Now, I think we kind of go back and forth between fathers sometimes. You know, this one became our father, even though that was our real father. And we're like an adopted kid running back and forth between fathers. We'll listen to God for a while, and first thing you know, Satan gets our attention. You know how parents do when there's been a divorce? And the mother will offer all kinds of gifts and ways to entice the children to be on her side and love her and hate that animal over there. And then when Daddy gets his visiting rights, he takes them to their favorite place and buys them a double ice cream and anything they want to try to convince them that he's the good guy and she's the bad girl. And the poor kids are the ones that suffer because they're being torn back and forth and forth and back. And it's evil. Now, when do we get solidly on God's side and not allow Satan to use us as his tools. When we start accusing each other, we have become a tool of Satan. He's the master tool user when it comes to human nature. John 16. John 16. I forgot to put my watch on. I'm depending on that, and I don't even remember it's there. So, be prepared. John 16. These things have I spoken to you, that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God service. We're going to have an Antichrist who will probably call himself Jesus, who will think and believe with all his deceived heart that when he kills God's people, he is doing a service to God. He'll believe it. He will have become so proud, so vain, so full of himself, but he thinks he's the Savior. And I don't think it will be a Buddhist. I don't think it will be an Islamic. It will be someone who comes out of the so-called Christian world, who thinks he is a true Christian, and we are Antichrist. And he will kill us in God's name and think he did the right thing. How deceived can you get? How upside down is that? Ephesians 6. 
I think we need to be educated. Maybe I'm not saying anything new here. Maybe we understand these things. But I think we need to go through it a little bit and understand how Satan works and what his devices are so that we are not so easily taken by him, that we provide more resistance than perhaps we have. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. There is a way to be able to stand against Satan and not be a tool in his hands, not let him get to us, not let him use us. And that is by putting on the whole armor of God. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. You know, flesh and blood, people, you can fight, you can wrestle with, you can influence. But that's not what we fight, really. It may seem that way. It may seem our enemies are human. It may seem our protagonists are flesh and blood. But really, behind the scenes, that's not what it's all about. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, or wicked spirits in high places. They're very powerful. The prince of Persia withstood Michael as he went to Daniel, and it took Gabriel and Michael to get the message through because Satan was just as strong as they were or as one of them was. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. The first thing you need is the truth. And having on the breastplate of righteousness. The truth does you no good unless you also protect your vital organs with righteousness. There are a lot of people who have the truth who are unrighteous and don't follow it. Who backbite, who devour, as Satan devours. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll see God. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Above all, we need faith. What is the thing that will be most lacking when Christ returns? He says, will I find faith? Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. It's easy to walk by the flesh, by sight. It's hard to walk by faith, to live by faith. Take the helmet of salvation. Have salvation as your main goal in your head. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Our Father in heaven, help us all. Not my Father in heaven, help me. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. For, I, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, a willing slave committed to do it, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Cry aloud, spare not. Tell my people their sins. Do you realize that Satan's ministers 
Satan's messengers, those who are used by Satan, whether they're dignitaries or not, can come as angels of light. They can be friendly. They can be warm. They can have human love. They can seem so good and still be tools of Satan. Satan himself comes as a minister of light. He doesn't appear evil. He must not have appeared too evil to Eve. However he manifested himself, he seemed fairly friendly. He seemed able to be listened to. He seemed to be bringing a pretty good message. It was something she was willing to swallow. It must have appeared pretty good. We have to be very, very careful what is brought to us. We have to examine it in the light of God's Word. We have to judge by the fruits thereof. Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. They appear innocuous, little woolly lambs. That's the way they appear. They really, really do. They don't appear as wolves. You've got to be careful. You shall know them by their fruits. The men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles. When they came to me in Alaska and asked me to keep the Sabbath from 6 to 6 instead of sundown to sundown, they had all their human reasons why that was better for scheduling. It would make life easier and better. And indeed, for some fishermen and various ones, it made life easier and better. And they asked me, well, don't you believe this is God's church? I always have. Don't you believe we're God's ministry? I always have. But God told me to do a teeth and tail check. See, if there's a wolf in sheep's clothing, they didn't like that at all. Put me out of the church for keeping the Sabbath from sundown to sundown as Scripture prescribes. Okay? I was a sucker, though. I made a lot of money that year, sent in a big check. About three weeks later, after it had time to process through Pasadena and get word back to the ministers in Alaska, they came to me and said, you know, we thought about this, and we're going to let you back in, but don't say anything to anybody about the Sabbath. I went back in. And I had to leave again. <laughs> That's the way things were. At that time, at least, I left on my own. Matthew ten sixteen. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be you therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men. Be careful. Satan uses men. We have to be very careful. I'm going to go back to John 8. I, I already quoted this, but I want to go back here and read this more in context. John 8, beginning of verse 38. I speak that which I have seen with my father, John 8:38, and you do that which you have seen with your father. 
They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Emmanuel said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Go back and read all the things Abraham did. Do what Abraham did. Well, with the exception of that one thing that has to do with money. But you do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. He didn't try to kill him. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We be not born of fornication like you, you little bastard. That's what they said. We have one father, even God. Do you think they believed that? You bet they did. They were sold on the idea that they worshiped God. Emmanuel said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? It's because you can't hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Did he kill anybody in the beginning? Well, it took a while, but he really killed Adam and Eve, didn't he? He killed Abel. How did he do it? Human instruments. Cain. He used Cain as a tool. I don't know what the process would have been. It may have taken a while for him to turn Cain that much against his brother so that he would become so jealous and envious he would kill it. Somehow Satan worked that out. It isn't natural to kill your brother, is it? Don't you need some help? Satan gave him all the help he could, and it worked. He's a liar and the father of it. And then he told them that was their father. Must have been a revelation, but they didn't believe him. They went ahead and killed him anyway, didn't they? Wouldn't believe the truth when it came from God himself. We need to be very, very careful. Sometimes we attack, and we might be attacking what God is doing. We just might. People have criticized what I've taught about getting rid of white sugar, white flour, soft drinks, junk foods. Ah, those are just physical things. They don't have to do with the spiritual. We're physical, aren't we? Last time I checked, I sure am. Do the pinch ah! test. I'm physical. Now, Christ said He's going to live His life in me, and that my body is the temple of His Holy Spirit, and I'm not to do things to this body that would defile it, that would harm it, that would hurt it, that would weaken it, that would hurt its health. And all these things, the foods of Babylon, the king's dainties, that's in a book in Daniel written to the end-time church. Pretty plain statement. Don't eat the things that Babylon provides for you. That's just physical. That's just physical. Is your body the temple of the Spirit of Almighty God, or is it not? Should you take care of it, or should you not? Should you do all you can to take care of it, or is that just physical? A man can go to Las Vegas and go to the nudie bars or Hooters, 
come back and tell the other people he's working with, man, that was awesome. Awesome. Do you tell your wife that? <laughs> I don't know how brave you are, but go for it. And if she gets upset, you'll say, just physical things. Just physical things. How far are you going to take it? How do we justify lust, covetousness? I don't know. Some people brag about their sins, don't they? Should we not rather be ashamed? I hear people that will tell you stories about their wild youth. Why? Most of us, I think, would be ashamed of whatever we used to do. Drugs, sex, alcohol, you name it. Some people like to tell it to you. And then they'll say, but that was bad, I shouldn't have done it. But I just had to tell you anyway. It's a form of bragging and pride. Proud of sin. Is that a godly attitude? No, it's not. We should be ashamed of our sin. We should hope to God that the blood of Emmanuel has covered it and it will never be mentioned to us again, that it's removed as far as the east is from the west, and that no one will ever dig the skeletons out of the closet. We hope that. We pray that about ourselves. Why then are we so quick to dig other people's skeletons out of the closet? Does that make sense? Where in there do you become a tool of Satan? and are accuser of the brethren for things that God may not even remember. He says, I remove it from it. It's gone. Forget it. People dug up things about Herbert Armstrong that were 50, 40, 30, 20, 10 years old. Some even wrote books about the sins of Herbert Armstrong. Now, I for one believe God used the man. He used him to call many people to God. Was he perfect? Not on your life. Did he have every doctrine right? Not on your life. Was he used of God? You better believe it. You and I would not be here had God not used that man. But there are people who have gone to their grave with bitterness and rebellion and hatred for that man, having written books about his sin. Were they tools of Satan? His accusers of Herbert Armstrong? I think so. Did they think they were tools of Satan? No. They were exposing this man for the evil that he was. They were God's masters of vengeance on sinners in their own minds. They were inadvertently used of Satan. Now, I'll tell you, I'm very concerned for this flock of people that I believe God has called out of this world, and I believe is even called out of the church to give more understanding, a deeper grasp, a specific job that has to be done. 
to learn to walk in faith and in the Spirit. Tough job, but somebody's got to do it. We're weak in base, including me, but he's called us to do a job. Now, one time, a couple, three years back, whatever it was, I was accused of some things. Weren't true. But I said, that's the way you're thinking? I'll offer my resignation, and I did. The congregation turned it down. I think they began to see through the accusations. I'm not going to do that again. I believe God has given me a job to do, and I'm going to do it. As long as He gives me help, strength, courage, and power to do it, I will do it. I will cry aloud. I will spare not. I will tell my people, His people, their sins. I will try to love them in a godly way. But if any who are tools of Satan, whether they know it or not, or are being used by Him, whether it may be God's tool, but Satan may have borrowed it for a little while, I'm not going to allow this flock to be destroyed by those who would destroy their faith. We have a people here who are trying to learn to walk in faith, to trust God for healing. And I'm not going to tolerate anyone who will go around and advise them to do differently. It's hard enough to learn to walk by faith. God told Asa, you will die because you sought the physicians, not the eternal. God said, if you be sick, call the elders of the church, have them anointed with oil, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Now, we can go through the physical ceremony of putting the oil on and pray, but the prayer has to be in faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. We have to believe it. So much faith, Christ said, I have not even seen in Israel of the centurion and of the woman who is willing to be called a dog because of her race. I said, can I even have the crumbs? Yes, you can, lady. Your daughter's healed. It was her faith that made the daughter whole. We must come to trust God with everything in our lives. Now, if we don't, we need to learn to. And I will not tolerate anyone attacking those who are trying to learn to walk that way, having their faith impeded by those who say, you've got to go to the doctor. If you destroy the faith of a little one, trying to learn to walk trusting God, you should have a millstone tied around your neck and be cast into the sea, says the loving God, our Savior. statement was made, you shouldn't leave your mate, go out there and live in the desert, said to somebody here, that's the wrong thing to do. Here was a person who analyzed the Bible, 
analyzed scripture and said, I must do that. I don't want to. don't want to leave my mate. But I feel I have to in order to obey God. Now, doesn't Acts 5.29 say we should obey God rather than man? Yes, it does. I had a time when I felt I must leave worldwide. I didn't pressure my wife into leaving with me. I said, I'm going to the feast here. She went to the feast there. She was not ready yet. I didn't persecute her. Didn't try to strong arm her into coming with me and doing what I'm doing. She had to make her own spiritual choices. It is very, very rare, and Herbert Armstrong commented on it fairly frequently, for a woman to stand up and obey God when her husband says, you should go this way, and she feels she should go that way. He was amazed that every time a man would turn around and go the wrong way, the wives always followed, almost without exception. They would follow their husbands out of the church. They would follow them into bitterness. They would follow them into disobedience. They would not stand up and be counted. Let's use a few examples from Scripture. I'm not going to turn to this one, but you'll remember the story in Ezra 10. Almost the whole chapter devoted to it. Where Israel had married strange wives, that is, of different races, and they had lots of children by those wives. And Ezra was a reformer. Ezra was trying to pull people away from Satan's way and Babylon's way to go God's way. And those people... Hundreds, maybe thousands of them, put their wives and their children whom they loved dearly away to obey God. And it is put in the Bible as an example of righteousness. Do we rebel against God's Word? Do we say, well, I don't think it's right. about Matthew 19 verse 29 Matthew 19:29 And everyone that has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife and that could be husband as well or children, or lands, for my name's sake. In order to obey Scripture as stated, anyone who has given up those things shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Is there a time to leave your home, your land, your husband, your wife, your children, to obey God? Leaving those things could ensure everlasting life. It goes against 
everything inside a human being. And we're willing to put our opinion and persecute ahead of it and persecute someone who feels honestly in their heart that they must do those things in order to obey God. Who are we to question that? Who are we to impinge upon their faith and make such an arrogant, presumptuous statement? Who do we think we are? When we say things that hurt the faith and could destroy it of a little one, God is not happy. Pick your own millstone. Do not hurt the faith of a little one. Don't do it. What about 1 Corinthians 7? Paul said, if your mate is not agreeable and will not let you serve God in peace and let you serve Him the way you feel you must, you can leave that mate and you are not bound to that mate. In fact, you are free to marry only in the church. Now, there are three very powerful scriptures that go against the advice that somehow Satan managed to put in somebody's head to tell a little one who was acting on knowledge of God and working at work walking by faith. We must be very careful. Am I looking at that wrong? Or I still have time, don't I? Or have I talked that long already? See, we start at 12.30, 1.30. I got till 2.30, don't I? Or am I wrong? Now I'm going to use some personal examples for a moment. There was a man lived some time back. I got married. And it was a happy marriage. This individual had everything there was to offer, a wife, and she was enamored with him. When it came time to say, I do, she says, you bet I do. I want to love you and I want to marry you and I want to live with you for the rest of my life, through all eternity. You know, we'll swim the highest oceans, we'll climb the highest mountain, and on and on the things we say before we get married. But somehow, people might say, he must not have had as much to offer as everyone thought. Because she became a desperate housewife. And she started running around here and there, doing things that a wife should not do. Began whoring around. And people would have said, man, what's missing with that old boy? He can't keep her happy. Something's wrong with him. It got so bad, it finally wound up in divorce. Now, you would think a man who had gone through that shouldn't be listened to because he had failed and he must have 
Not done it right somehow. Must not have offered her everything she needed. Couldn't please her. Couldn't satisfy her. Some way. What's wrong with him? Certainly wouldn't want to take his advice on marriage, would you? That's the life story of Emmanuel the Christ, the God of the Old Testament, who married a wife and couldn't keep her. Probably shouldn't listen to his advice, should you? He don't know anything about marriage. He went through a divorce. Now, he also raised lots of bad kids, from Adam and Eve on down. None of them have turned out too well. They've had their problems. They've been rebellious. They've had difficulties. Doesn't seem like he's getting the job done there either, so probably shouldn't listen to him about child rearing. His credibility shot by billions of people who are not willing to listen to their father or their older brother. Paul killed Christians. Better watch out for that dude. His, his credibility shot. He killed some of us. We're going to listen to him preach? No way. Man, they scatter like a covey of quail when Paul came in the room. Maybe they were afraid the centurions were right behind him. You know, I think God gave me a job to do here, and I think most of you believe that or you wouldn't be here. How did I open the Feast of Tabernacles? I didn't know how I was going to do it. I had something in mind I was going to use at the feast, and I prayed pretty diligently about it, and I didn't use that at all. I used something else. And I wasn't sure Friday afternoon what I was going to say on opening night. But I prayed about it, opened the Bible, and the concept came to mind that maybe this would be a good time to say, let's give God a good feast. He's been unhappy with our feasts, Isaiah 1 and other scriptures. Maybe it's time we try to please Him and give God a good feast. Please Him in everything we say and everything we do. And I think that that was a reasonable request, don't you? I think that was a good theme to have for the feast. It seemed to keep coming up a little. After I got through what had come on the next few days came to Friday, and I'd kind of exhausted the subjects that I'd been covering. Well, Thursday I went through some things on the millennium and the happiness and peace and joy that is to come, which is a millennial theme, and that was done. You know, you can continue to read about wolves and bears and snakes living together, but that had been covered too. So what am I going to say today? I don't know. Friday morning, and yeah, I don't know. Got the Bible out, opened it up, prayed to God, give me a message for today. And I thumbed across Second Peter. And I thought, well, there's a lot of hope in Second Peter, and it's short, and I can get through it in one sermon, I think. And it just seemed to fit. 
So I went through it on Friday. And I'd ask God to open my mouth and have me speak what he wanted spoken. And man, did I ever emphasize that on being careful for those that Satan might be using for his purposes, whether they knew it or not, and however subtly, not that they were possessed of Satan or followers of Satan, but Satan can use them. And he said, chiefly those who walk in the lusts of the flesh, A, and B, those who will speak evil of dignities, something that even angels will not do. I stayed on that quite a little time, don't you remember? And yet I had no idea, none whatever, as I prayed that prayer, that there were those who were saying things about me, delving into my past as they understood it, and telling people about it, the feast. You know what I think? I think God was backing me. I think God was causing me to see scriptures and emphasize certain points in them and I didn't even realize it. Because the message was to you who might be influenced by someone who would be speaking evil of those whom God had put in office. Now, it wasn't maybe completely total character assassination. It was more subtle than that. Well, I believe God's using Daryl. I agree with most of what he says. But, now when you stick that butt in there, you're about to be used as a tool of Satan. See, that is a subtle way that human beings and Satan can approach us. Well, I agree with this, and I agree with that, but then we open our mouths and things, say things we should not say. We lay our excuses ahead of time. I love you, man, but you're not getting my beer. I listen to say people say, I love you, man, but you're not getting my flock. God's flock. I will protect it. I love you, man. Just don't listen to anything he says about marriage. I love you, man. Don't listen to what he says about childbearing. I love you, man. Just stay away from physical things. I love you, man. Don't talk about jubilee and tithing. I love you, man. But don't talk about law and grace. I love you, man. But let's just have love. Human emotion, not godly love based on commandment keeping. I love you, man, but let's not talk about Purim and fasting. I love you, man, but I know prophecy a little better than you do. When you get through with all this, high percentage of that you agree with, how much you got left? Well, when you're on the Sabbath, maybe a few other things. That's the way Satan does it. That's the way he goes about it. To throw in a disclaimer every 10, 15 minutes, well, you know, I agree with such and such, and this is good, but... But but if 
probably the two biggest words in the English language and can cause more grief than most any other two words you could possibly use. I agree, but, which actually means I disagree. I agree, but is a negative statement. I once knew a woman who said, you have to love him, he's your father. Is that a positive statement? Not at all. She thought it was. Well, that's a negative statement. It's a loaded one. You have to love him in spite of all it is because he is your father. Doesn't sound too negative on the surface, but the effect is negative. Now, we can say things that sound pretty positive, but there's a twist. That is a device of Satan. He spoke to Adam and Eve, but there was a twist. He spoke to Christ after 40 days, quoted Scripture, but there was a twist. There's always a little twist, someone can swear in there, so that an angel of light... can deceive you and you think it's coming from God and it's not. Anything that destroys the faith of the little ones or destroys the credibility of their leaders is of Satan. Not even the angels in heaven dare to do that. But we'll do it in the name of love. I love you, man, but Don't fall sway to Satan's devices. Don't let him get the upper hand on us. I have been used many times by Satan as a tool. Sometimes didn't know it till later on. Now, why? I went through a divorce about 25 years ago. I've never tried to hide that. There have been people who asked me about it, and I've told them the whole story myself. In fact, when I began to be a minister in uh, John Reitenbaugh's group, I sat down with John and I said, that's going to come up somewhere along the line. And it's going to look bad for your organization because people will look at it negatively. I explained everything that happened, how it came about, what Mr. Armstrong's role with it was in it, and on, on and on it went. And I even wrote it up and gave a copy to John Reed and to John Reitenbaugh and to Richard Reitenbaugh and said, if anyone questions, you don't have to try to explain or anything, just let them read this. And try to hide it. There are people today who are not there who did not know for sure, but heard it second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand, fifth-hand, however they got it, who think they know the facts, and then they'll spread them to someone else. Why? What does that accomplish? What good does that do? How does it help improve people's faith, understanding, 
I'll tell you what the motive underneath it all is. That is to destroy credibility. Don't listen to him. He had a failed marriage. Therefore, you can do what you wish in marriage. Don't listen to the sermons on marriage. That is the implication. It may not be stated. It's the implication. He didn't raise his kids. Don't listen to him about child rearing. The implication is he doesn't know anything about it. Fact is, I raised them to teenage. Fact is, they went back and forth from their mother to me and lived with both off and on through all their teenage years. And two, I raised from babyhood through teenage till I left home. It's not what's being said. No, you don't have to listen to me unless I speak God's words from His Word. You know, some people sometimes learn from some of the things they do and the mistakes they make. Some people can go through ten marriages and never learn and keep doing the same thing over and over again. Some people learn the first or second time. We all make mistakes rearing our children, but God tells us how to do it in here, and that's what I preach. Some of you don't like it, so you say, well, he didn't raise his kids. He went through a divorce, so you don't have to listen to him about children. Why else would you bring it up? Who cares what happened 20, 25, 30, a little bit 40 years ago in someone's life if they've changed or if they've grown? Or whatever Christ did in the Old Testament that didn't work in his marriage, can he not tell us about marriage in the New Testament? Whatever happened with his kids, he's not done with us yet. But if you looked at the kids right now, you would have to consider that God is a massive failure. Wouldn't you? Massive failure. Now, I'm not giving this sermon to knock anybody. I'm giving it so that if we've been used by Satan, we can repent of it and not let him use us anymore. Or, if he is using someone to get his message across, we not listen to them anymore. We have to get rid of it. You know, people have a way of saying things and trying to put it in a positive way while they get their digs in. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but just between you and me, how many times in your life have you heard that? Just between you and me and the doorpost or the fence post. Common expression. That's the way you start a gossip session with a disclaimer at the beginning. This won't go anywhere else. Don't you tell anybody. Of course, they'll go tell their very best friend. And they'll tell their very best friend. And you might as well have stood on the rooftop and said, here it is, because that's where it goes, isn't it? Good news travels fast. Bad news travels fast.
It's juicier. Have I ever claimed to be perfect? No. I think I tell you pretty regularly. I have to fight it every day. I started sinning when I was young. I don't even remember how young. And I've broken every rule there is. Every last one of them. You weren't there through my life. You can impute motives. You can say I did this or did that. You can exaggerate it. Truth to tell, I probably know more of my sins than you even ever heard of or thought you heard of. I was probably worse than you ever thought. Sorry, you're just not telling the truth. It's worse. I put myself ahead of God so many times in my life, you can't count them. I'm an idolater. And that breaks all the rest of them, doesn't it? Paul thought he was the chief of sinners. I probably sinned a lot more than Paul did. You know, records are made to be broken. That's what they say in sports. I don't know. He killed Christians thinking he was doing God a service. I've assassinated them spiritually. I think that's worse. Don't you? Would you rather be killed physically or have your spiritual life and everlasting opportunity be destroyed by those who would assassinate you spiritually, such as the Takachas and others? We need to think about this because Satan wants to kill us above anyone else on earth. He has the rest deceived. And he would deceive us if it were at all possible. I think it is the height of arrogance and presumption for any one of us to bring up any one others of us sins and tell people about them. Whoever it may be. Because God says He removes them as far as the east is from the west, that they will never again be mentioned to us, and that they're buried in the blood of Emmanuel. Who do we think we are? That we will dig someone's sins out of Christ's blood. I don't think you can get more arrogant or more presumptuous than that. I think it's impossible. Gossip is something churches talk about, something preachers preach about, and people continue and never stop doing it. Maybe we just don't get it. If God forgives our sins, we must have already forgiven other people's sins. He says He will not forgive our sins. Ever, ever, ever! Unless we forgive the sins of others. 
I use some personal examples here because I think we should be careful, since God says so, about trying to destroy the credibility of those that God might have sent. None of them ever have been, or ever will be in this life, perfect. But God protected Samuel. He protected David. He protected Elijah. He allowed some of his prophets to be stoned. He protected Herbert Armstrong in the beginning when there were those who tried to destroy his credibility and destroy the work in its infancy. It's in the autobiography. People tried to destroy that work for years. And when it was almost over, they began writing books about that sinner Herbert Armstrong whom God used to start the end-time church. We better be careful lest we be found fighting God. If you try to destroy the leaders of the flock, that is Satan's way of also destroying the flock. And if you destroy the faith of a little one, you are flirting with eternal condemnation. And if we bring up sins that God has forgiven, we better be very careful. You and I have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I may have sinned more than all of you. Maybe all of you combined, I don't know. But I'm trying to live God's way. And I have made some changes. Pitifully few sometimes it seems, but I've made some. And I hope you have too. But I hope we keep making some more changes. And I would wish that we could put presumption and arrogance and pride aside and selfishness and truly love our neighbors as ourselves rather than just saying it and expressing emotion while we stab them in the back and love as God loves. That's the only kind of love that will survive. Emotion will not. Love is only love if it's according to God's commandments. The Apostle John made that his last message to the church. If you don't get it right, you ain't got it. It's got to be the right kind of love. Satan wants to destroy every last one of us here. And however subtly, he will use us. He's used me. He's used you. He'll use us again if we'll let him. But we need to put on the whole armor of God and stand against the wiles of the devil and not be ignorant of his devices and how inadvertently and how easily he can use our human nature against us. We're pushovers. We're just pushovers. Don't let him push you over anymore. I'm not here to condemn anybody. I'm here to say God has used, or Satan has used us all. Let's not let him. Let God use us. 